So this is the first of two sermons on love. But as you probably know, David's been poorly and we've had a bit of a a jiggle around. So I was supposed to be on later in the series because we were nicely and logically and concisely going through chapter by chapter, but we're having a bit of a jiggle around. So David asked me to look at two back-to-back sermons on love, one on 1 John chapter 3 and one on 1 John chapter 4. We're actually going to reverse them round. We're going to look at a couple of verses from John chapter 4 today, and then we're going to look at a couple of verses from John chapter 3 in a couple of weeks. When we watched this, the great Bible Project video a couple of weeks ago, I was very tempted to show it again, but I decided not to. We were told that there are two main themes in John's Gospel. So you've got light and you've got love. SJ had a look at light this week, and I'm going to introduce love today. Now, 1 John can be really difficult to access. You've got to forget the nice linear arguments of Paul, even though they can be quite pithy and quite difficult to get your teeth into. When you read 1 John, especially 1 John 3 and 1 John 4, you can get the sensation that he's all over the place. You kind of get through half through a chapter and you think, well, hang on a second, have I not just read that two or three verses ago? And then you go into the next chapter and you think, well, I've read that already. What's, what's he doing? Why does he keep repeating himself? David Jackman suggests that a good way to describe John's writing is to imagine you're looking at a statue as you walk up a spiral staircase. Whenever you stop and look at the statue as you walk up the staircase, you see a slightly different view, an angle you haven't quite seen before. And that's the case with love, as we see it in 1 John. So over the two sermons that we've got, we're going to look at two differing aspects of love. This week we're going to focus on how John defines love, what impact that has on our relationship with God. In two weeks' time, we're going to have a look at how we live our lives in love for other. So these are our verses for today. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son and as atoning sacrifice for our sins. Later in the same chapter, John says, there is no fear in love because perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Now, I would encourage you either later today or during the the week to look at both passages, the whole of John chapter 3, 1 John 3 and the whole of 1 John 4. But today we're just going to focus on these two verses. So let's remind ourselves of the context of John's letter because it informs us about what he thinks about love. As I've said, the key themes of his letter are light and love. And John writes in a way which repeats his key themes over and over again. Every aspect is just honed and expanded and developed. But John's writing is rich in meaning. I get a feeling John was a passionate people person. He definitely was a loving pastor. The word John used to describe his feeling for those he's writing to at the beginning of 1 John is agapetos. David Jackman notes that this means 
John writes to those he loves with the same quality as God loves him. I'm just going to read that again. John writes to those he loves with the same quality as God loves him. So what we immediately see is the whole of 1 John is soaked in love. Its content, its purpose, its outcomes are all rooted in love. Now there is another key theme that floats around and floats through John's gospel, and that's his opposition to those he considered to be deceivers, those who were opposing the faith. And these were primarily Gnostics. Gnosticism covered a wide range of, of beliefs, but primarily they were all focused around one main belief, and that was that physical matter was evil. And if physical matter was evil, the divine and the physical couldn't meet, like oil and water. They just could not come together and be combined. As a result, Jesus, Gnostics believed, could not be fully God and fully human. A form of Gnosticism, Docetism, believed that God was fully divine and only appeared to be human. So why was John bothered? Why was he so kind of impassioned to write this sermon, this pastoral letter? Well, our reading says this, doesn't it? This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son and as atoning sacrifice for our sins. And it's just that end of the sentence we're going to come to first. John knew and taught his churches that Jesus was fully God and fully man. You've only got to go into the first verse of the first chapter of 1 John to see this. That which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, looked at and touched. This is what we call the incarnation. And John also knew that without the full divinity and full humanity of Christ, Jesus' death could not atone for the sins of the world of his church, of you and of me. Gnosticism was indeed the enemy of the Christian faith. So the first part of John defining love is this. He links the definition of love to Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross. This is love. God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Love incarnate means God in Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. The self-sacrificial love of Christ was not the ultimate expression of love without both full humanity and full divinity. Tom Wright comments, love incarnate must be the badge that the Christian community wears, a sign not only of who they are, but who their God is. But what does love look like to us? When John talks about love, what kind of love is he talking about? What does the Bible teach us about what love is? Now here we need to remember John's congregation, his churches were primarily made up of Jewish Christians. 
or Christians who had had a Jewish heritage. So therefore, they had listened to the Bible being read to them, the Old Testament, over and over again, week after week in the synagogue. So they knew a bit about love. So we're actually going to start what love means in the Old Testament rather than the New Testament, because it all links in together. Now, in the delights of the Hebrew language, a B is actually usually pronounced as a V, so that actually says Ahab, not Ahab or Ahab, as I was trying to read it. So, and I like to work in pictures as well as in words. So in Exodus 21.5, we see that servants who were put into or allowed to work in Hebrew families once every seven years, the year of Jubilee came, and they were set free. But if a servant so loved their master, they could agree to be bonded to him for life. So if you've ever wondered in that ancient chorus, pierce my ear, O Lord, the reason is because the way they were bonded is that their ear was put against a doorpost and it was bonded. But it was a sign of a have, a sign of love. I want to be bonded to you. My family want to be bonded to you for life. It becomes a typology, a type of love that we see in Jesus. In Deuteronomy, we see Moses proclaim the Shema, the Jewish prayer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. I've, I've slipped into the New Testament, sorry. And then the writer of Proverbs reminds his readers, the Lord detests the way of the wicked, but he loves those who pronounce wickedness. And a characteristic of love through the whole Bible is that it's not passive or neutral. It's an action. So for every noun, there's also a verb. And there we have ahava, the action and attitude of love. God loved his people, the people of Israel, with an ahava, love. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other people, for you were the fewest of people, Moses says. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery for the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So we see God's redeeming work rooted in his Ahava love for his people. And if we needed any reminder, God fervently loved the people of Israel and he fervently loved us. And last but by no means least, we see strewn through the whole of the Old Testament this beautiful word, hesed, which sometimes means mercy, sometimes means kindness, sometimes means loving kindness, sometimes means steadfast love. And if you want to see Hesed in action, read the book of Ruth. And Boaz acting as kinsman redeemer. Naomi and Ruth coming back to Israel and Ruth's Hesed, Ruth's loving kindness shown to Naomi, reflects God's loving kindness. We see that, don't we, reflected in the New Testament. So if you've ever been to Philadelphia in the States, it's the city of brotherly love. Philio, Storge, Eros. But then we depart, don't we, 
from the Old Testament. We come into a love which is different, a love which is, is deeper, a love which is characteristic of the New Testament. Over 120 times we see this agape love. Agape love, we're told in Corinthians, is patient. Agape love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Who shall separate us from the agape love of Christ? Paul questions. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness? And as we saw in the Old Testament, for every noun there's a verb. So agape is accompanied by agapao, to love. And in our passages today, 27 times, agape, agapao, agape, agapao, over and over again. For God so loved the world, agapao, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. A rich young man comes up to Jesus on a dusty road, and Jesus looks at him with a deep, limitless love. Jesus looks at him and loved him. Agapau. So we're led to see that God's agape love, God's agapau love, is radically different from all other sorts of love. David Jackman says, it's meant to take our breath away. The word used actually has the kind of connotation of something which is completely foreign to your thinking or understanding. It's that dramatic. God's agape love is so amazing it can make us stop in our tracks and contemplate its wonder. It stops us when Jesus talks to the woman at the well or to save the woman about to be stoned for having been caught in adultery. When he holds out a hand to a leper or lifts up the woman with the issue of blood. It takes our breath away when we see him look at Peter as he denies him. And later, when he appears to Peter on the beach, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Agapau, do you love me? And that love, that agape love, renders us motionless on the cr- when we see Jesus hauled up onto a cross of wood, an action of a God of love. This is how we know what love is, John cries out. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And from the depths of our souls and our hearts, it evokes a response. Oh, who am I, the hymn writer explains, that for my sake the Lord should take frail flesh and die? The God of agape love sends Jesus the Son, fully human, fully divine, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. This is love, John exclaims. This is how we know what love is.
and love so amazing, so divine, demands a response. I give thee back the life I owe, George Matheson writes, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. The agape love of God enriches our lives, makes them deeper, fuller. Agape love is all God's initiative. He reaches out, he reaches down. And our souls recognize that Jesus, who is all compassion, who is pure, unbounded love, comes to us, lives in us, even in my trembling heart. Now, just as you'd think that was enough, John's pastor's heart kicks in. There's more, he says. Not only do we define love as Jesus dying on the cross as an atoning sacrifice of our sins, not only do we see the actions of a loving God lived out through the life of Jesus, John says this, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. God's love is amazing, isn't it? It's awesome. For those of us who are Christians, we'd say it's life-changing. It's taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and placed us in the kingdom of light. But some would say, surely it can't be freely given. Surely you have to earn God's love. Surely I'm not worthy of God's love. I've done too many things wrong. No, says John. Not only is it freely given, God loved you before you loved him. So why is that important? Surely it's just semantics. Well, if God loved you before you loved him, there is absolutely nothing you can do to make God love you more than he already does. Paul put it another way. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, this has implications for our second sermon about loving others. In our opening, we learned about John's pastor's heart. In simple terms, he loved those in his church in the same way that Jesus Christ loved him. And that agapetos love, loving others as Christ has loved us, is what we're called to do. Now, you'd think that was quite simple, wouldn't you? But as John, as a pastor, recognises, it isn't always that simple. It's easy to allow fear to replace love as our motivation for loving others and for serving others. For if we fear that God doesn't love us enough, or we aren't worthy enough, or we're not good enough, or talented enough, we can start to try and earn God's love. We can do that by doing lots of things, coming to all the church events, helping out all the time, volunteering for everything, and then suddenly our service, even our love for others, has become driven by fear. The fear that we are not worthy 
of the love that God has freely offered us. And if you read the whole passage, suddenly verse 18 starts to make a little bit more sense. When John says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. John proclaims a simple truth. God loved you and loved me first. God cannot love you any more than he does already. When you did not know him, the Bible tells us he died for you. God in Christ calls us to live in love. Love that is given to us unconditionally, that is revealed through Jesus and is also revealed for other Christians. So this we'll turn to in our second sermon in a couple of weeks' time. Well, that brings us to a question. Well, a series of questions, really. Do you know, genuinely know, the love of God in your own life? Do you want to know more of the love of God in your life? Reflecting this on early, I thought, having just celebrated my 30th wedding anniversary with Debbie, when you've been in love with someone for a long time, it's easy to start to take them for granted. You know, the love is just there as a constant presence. But God calls us to constantly be recreated and renewed. And so God calls us to experience more of his love and to have that love and that sense of first love refilled and replenished. Do you want to know more of that love in your life? Are you living your life for God? Are you fearful that God does not love you because you are not good enough? And that is dictating how you are acting and responding as part of this fellowship. Do you find yourself constantly trying to earn God's love? John's response is one verse. That's the verse we've looked at today. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God called his people, the church that he serves, to a response. What's our response today? What's your response to God's amazing agape love? We're going to stop there because I want us to spend some time in ministry. If you want to experience God's love in your life in a new way, if God's revealed to you that you're constantly striving for God's love to earn his love, this talk about a God of love who loves you unconditionally before you ever knew him is new and you've never heard of it before. We'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Rich and John are going to lead us through a time of worship. I'm at the front. If at any point during that time, at any point during the worship, you feel that you'd like to come to the front, uh, and be prayed for. There'll be people here who will come up and pray with you. If you prefer to stay in your seats, I'm sure the people around you will pray for you as well. But uh, I'll hand over to John and to Richard.